I'm really happy for you. I'm let you finish. Hello and welcome to On In 5. I'm Anton Ryder. Thank you for joining us on this new year. Welcome to 2020. How's your 2020 going, Mr. Ethan? It's going pretty good. I'm having a great time so far. Uh, what about what about uh, anyone else that might be here? Austin, how's your 2020? Oh, yeah, I'm assuming that was directed towards me. It's actually not 2020 yet because we're recording this two weeks beforehand. Austin! I am finally out, of, finally out of the bathroom for oh, the last two days. That's show tunes, yes. I caught the bug and it almost Austin killed me. caught the bug from me. We both had the stomach flu last week. Straight from the horse. <laughs> weird. I just terrible. got drunk from you, Tony. Yeah, thank well, you. Yeah, thank we went you. we went to a Christmas party at Tony's, and Tony was violently ill with the flu two days prior, and I somehow still I Clorox got it. wiped the whole house, and it didn't make one bit of difference. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> yep, yep. I uh, so, thanks for that. Yeah, man. it was really really fun. I shit my pants a couple times that day. <laughs> you said four times, but you know what? I I can't even hold it against you because this guy was your idea, and this might be my favorite episode so far. Oh. Oh, yeah. This is going to be a super fun episode. So today we are dealing with, um, I think this is the truest it's ever been, the man, the myth, and the legend, Mr. Robert Johnson. Very fitting. If if you think you've never heard of Robert Johnson, there's a good chance you haven't, but you do know him yes. in some way or another because he has influenced so many people that we've already talked about. If you don't know him, you know of him, and you know some aspects of his story um, that have become legend uh, since he Big died. Time. Yeah. Yes. So uh, let's get into the books we read first. So we want to talk about what we read. Um, I read Up Jump the Devil by Gail Dean Wardlow and Bruce Conforth. It's a super in-depth look at his life. They did years and years. Like, I think they devoted their life to researching Robert. And um, it's it's a way in-depth look. Like, they, they it, talk about yeah. how other books got it wrong and, and they did an awesome job. Um, we also read Crossroads by Tom Graves and Devil's Son by Patrizza Barrera. And uh, the audiobook that we listened to is narrated by a guy from New Zealand. And I got to say, if you want to find it super hard to engage in a story about a black blues players from the deep south in the early 1900s, have the story told to you by a guy in a thick New Zealand accent. <laughs> because, man, is it hard to get into the story. You, you will feel every <laughs> note of soul. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, it's like, it, it's like Robert Johnson... Uh, I can't do a New Zealand accent. <laughs> you were, I, you were, were like almost. You are nailing it. Yeah. I don't know why you stopped. <laughs> Robert Johnson uh, went to the Delta and. You gotta do it. <laughs> Robert, jo- Robert Johnson Robert studied. Johnson. Robert Johnson studied in the 1920s. <laughs> he played blues in the Delta. Yeah, no. It's, anyway, it's, this is the guy who the story of selling your soul to the devil to become a, a guitarist it basically comes from. Yes. This kind is, of. Kind of. We'll get into it more. <laughs> Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, uh, mythology based around this guy, and so we are going to come in and we are going to basically break down the facade of that mythology. We're going to break down what actually happened instead of a lot of the myths, but we're also going to tell you the myths because they're super interesting, the legends that surround the man. So, 
Um, I'll, also, I uh, I watched uh, Can't You Hear the Wind Howl with uh, Danny Glover from Lethal Weapon. He narrated most of it. It's kind of fun. Uh, it's an easy watch. I watched it like three times. It's all right. It's very, it's, cool. it is good, uh, but yeah, cool. it, it comes in, it's, yeah, it's Danny Glover and he's like, he's God. just like. He talks so soft, and, like the whole time. Robert Johnson yeah. went up to Hazelhurst to try and find his father. <laughs> and it's yeah. like these dramatic sweeping yeah. shots and it's like, what are you doing, Danny Why? Glover? Well, I think he's just like really nervous about the fact he's never going to be Morgan Freeman and he's laying it on as thick as <laughs> yeah. possible. Yeah, he's doing his best uh, Morgan he's Freeman. He's very aware just, of the fact that he's yeah. never going to be that caliber oh. voice and narrator. Yeah. He's doing the Mer- Morgan Freeman doing Danny Glover doing Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> And he's, you know, <laughs> solid B+. Plus. That's a good, uh, all right job. It's worth a watch, yeah. at least. It's but it's okay. good, yeah. They talk to a ton of people who are actually from the, the time period, the 30s, when Robert Johnson was around. And, so. like, actually knew him and stuff. It's kind of cool. Yeah, so go check it out. And if you don't want to check it out, why don't you just keep listening to the story? Because we're going to break it all down <laughs> right now. So, and Robert, if you do check it out, turn this off. Don't turn it back on. Yeah, just watch just, that. You don't need to listen times. to us if you're going to watch the movie. So, yeah. Yeah. So. And, uh, yeah, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next episode. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, let's get into it. Robert Johnson was born on May 8th, 1911 in Hazelhurst, Mississippi to Julia Dodds and Noah Johnson. They were unmarried and Julia was basically just living with Noah after her first husband, Charles Dodd, had to run away, literally ditch town to avoid being lynched. Robert had five brothers and sisters and these kids, plus the addition of Robert, drove Julia to leave Noah due to constant arguments. They lived in a one or two room shack and had next to no money, which was the main reason for their fighting. Robert was born into this poverty and oftentimes went hungry as an infant. And this is believed to have led to his lazy eye because uh, basically the malnutrition that he'd had just ruined his eye um, and that he became known for it later in life. Yeah. And uh, other people speculated it could have been a cataract, but he was only 27 when he died. So it's a little more likely that this was probably it. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been pretty weird for a cataract to come on that heavily and that early. But it was also the 20s. So Exactly. Yeah. Things were a lot different. Yeah. People were getting cocaine for their headaches. So. Yeah. (laughs) God, what a simpler time. (laughs) Take me back. Um, So after being on the run for quite some time, Julia and her two children, Robert and Carrie, uh, asked to move in with the now ex-husband, Charles, who had fled earlier to escape lynching. Um, He was named Charles Dodds, but he changed his name to Charles Spencer to avoid detection. So Charles and his new wife, Molly, welcomed Julia and their children into their Memphis, Tennessee home. And shortly after arriving into the house, Julie again left to go find work, leaving two-year-old Robert and his sister behind with the family he had never met. He was left to live in a small house with seven other people, but ended up considering the Spencers his real family. He didn't consider Julia really his true family. He considered Charles and Molly and them. They lived in the growing metropolis of Memphis, and they lived very near Beale Street, which is basically the art center of Memphis. He would go watch shows like Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show, the circus, uh, like, like Ringling Brothers Circus, and even Harry Houdini. And this is where he got his first taste of blues music. Musicians would sit along the street on sidewalks and street corners and play for tips. He was fully immersed in it, and he loved every minute of it. 
This was like before he was interested in music. It was any kind of performing he could see. And yeah, like he said, he loved pop and stuff too. Just anything yeah, he yeah. could hear. It was on the just radio. the aspect of watching people perform, and then it slowly transitioned into the blues as he got more acquainted with them. Yeah. Yep. So he would just go watch them whenever he could. That's all he cared about was just going to watch these guys. And he would eventually begin trying to play himself. His stepbrother eventually showed Robert the guitar and let him try out his guitar. He also taught Robert some piano, which he would use later in life. He loved this place so much that he's changed his name from Johnson to Spencer. So he was going by Robert Spencer for a, a a couple of years at the very least. Yeah, like some people in the documentary knew him as Spencer and not Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yep. Um that's another big thing about this guy is everything we know about him is in hindsight. No no none of this legend was built when he was alive. It was people discovering him after he died and trying to figure out his story that added to so much of this because people were looking for so long for birth certificates of Robert Johnson and there's nothing and then they found out maybe it was because he was called Robert Spencer for so long, and then there was still nothing, and then it's he probably just didn't have a birth certificate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He may may have not had a birth certificate, and a lot of the stuff that they get is is just through like census. So they would use yeah. censees throughout the decades and stuff like that, and basically that's how they would locate where he was at the beginning of every decade and who he was with and ba- things like that. So th- they. Like I said, they the the people who study Robert Johnson li- like literally devote their lives to it because yeah. it it it's a life's work to try and figure out everything. And he um, is an actual myth. <laughs> yeah, and the people who wrote Up Jump the Devil basically said if there's something that we like, if there if there's more information out there, we'll never get it because it's, people are it, dying like, off. Exactly. Yeah. Start. People are starting to die super fast, and people died even shortly after he died. So they had a ton of information that died off. And so they said, this is basically the most complete collection of information we have about Robert Johnson. Yep. So you should go read that if you're interested. If this piques your interest, you should go read that because it's very, very good. He started school when he was five years old, which was really uncommon for a black child in the South. Not many of them went to school, but there was, I mean, there was schools and he went to an all black school and stuff like that. But basically living in Memphis gave him a huge leg up on on his peers elsewhere in the South. He was in school for a few years where he learned to read and write, and he was even known to have beautiful handwriting. But with every good blue story, that must come to an end. (laughs) Oh, man, just another dropout. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. I said it before and we said it again. If you don't drop out, there's just no point. Why even even pursue music if you're not going to drop out? (laughs) Yep, yep. Yeah, so he dropped out when he was real little um, in 1919. Yeah, he was ahead of the curve. Yeah. Yeah. That's why he's so successful. That's why he's a legend. Uh, he yeah. was not successful, Ethan. Uh, okay, that's why he's, we'll that's why he's a legend, okay? Successful in his time. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, so, so in 1919, when he was eight years old, his mother, Julia, came back to Memphis to get Robert. She had found a new man and needed some help on the farm. So against his wishes, Robert was pulled from school and the home he had known for the last seven years to move to Arkansas to help in the fields with Dusty Willis. That's a stupid-ass name. Uh, <laughs> Julia's new husband. And Dusty was over 20 years younger than Julia. What 
a cougar. And mm. he couldn't read or write. And he, Dusty was actually a nickname for him. And everyone called him Dusty because they said when he walked down the dirt roads so fast that he left a dust trail. Jesus. So that's so he's, he's one of those weird speed walkers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. He's, he's, just like, he's like along the road. Gump. Always somewhere to be so just quick. Always everyone, I was running. <laughs> everyone considered him a dullard. And actually, um, the, <laughs> the fact that... He the was. fact that uh, that Robert could read and write and Dusty couldn't c- caused a lot of tension in the household. So there was this <laughs> nine-year-old who was smarter than this adult. Robert and, like, would just like write Dusty something on the paper like he it. wants him to read and be like, hey, man, yeah, he just wrote this for like me? a big like, fuck you on the paper. And, and he's like, I can't read. read. I can't Dusty. read that. Good, because it says fuck you. <laughs> yep. Uh, Yep, that's how it would go. So, yeah, uh, Dusty and Robert did not get along um, because Robert was in this awesome metropolis and got to see music every day and art and everything like that. Now he had to go be a farmer, which he had never done and he never wanted to do. Um, He hated working in the fields and because of that he would basically refuse to work um but one thing that he did enjoy about the move down to arkansas was the music that was there the blues there was much more raw and soulful than the stuff he was hearing in memphis every saturday robert would sneak out to go listen to this music at jukes and at implantations and basically anywhere he could find it yeah and this was everyone's big inner like respite because all these sharecroppers had to work day and night Every weekday, so it was Saturdays were the night everyone looked forward to to go to these dances and listen to music and drink and have a good one good night out of the yeah. whole week. God. Yep, they were all they, basically they all just wanted to go get tanked and listen to blues music yeah. and pick up women and stuff like that, and that's what they did. Um, one so night of respite. Oh, one night in Paris, am I right? <laughs> um, so his favorite time of year was the off season from December until March. So there was no planting to be done. There was nothing, anything like that. So they, all that they could do during that time was drink and listen to music. It was basically party time. And there were a lot more musicians that came around because since there were no working farmers, they could be uh, drunk a lot more. They could be drunk seven days a week and they could listen to music a lot more. And they had money from being paid from the last year's crop. So uh, during those seasons, he would see a ton of musicians come through the area. Um, So in 1924, he was once again able to attend school. So his family moved from this really small town to a slightly larger town that had a black school. So he was able to move back into school, but he had missed it for five years. He was now 13. That's a huge setback for him. Yeah. 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 He missed five years of school and and the school between um, eight and 13, that's pretty important stuff. That's really important. Like, like, I'm sure it was different back then, but I'm sure it was (laughs) yeah exactly yeah that's that's big that i mean that's that's leaving in uh first second grade and then coming back in like sixth grade or seventh grade so like eighth yeah so i mean you miss a lot of stuff but but he was i mean able to catch up as best as he could um and he attended school for as long as he could he was still going to visit the Spencer family in Memphis whenever he could as well. And he continued to use their last name, even though he was living with Julia, his biological mother. Uh, Julia eventually told him about his real father, Noah Johnson, who he had never known about before. He always thought that the Spencer family was his real. He always mm. thought that Charles 
Spencer was his real dad. And so uh, he found out that Noah Johnson was actually his real dad. Um, So he started going by both Robert Spencer and Robert Johnson. So this is where he first picked up his, his name that everyone knows him by, Robert Johnson. When he was 15, he started picking up the guitar more regularly. He was already pretty well-versed on the harmonica, the diddly bow, which was essentially a guitar built into the side of a house. There's a a point in the movie where this guy's talking about how he was working in the fields and Robert walks up to the side of the house, sets up a diddly bow with three nails, well, I guess six nails, and then starts playing and the boss just, like, got annoyed with Robert and told him to leave. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, get, I that's a double that. win that's a double <laughs> win that, I mean, I know, right? don't have to work and gotta keep the troops entertained that's right yeah uh so so it, there's actually another story where he took uh, a he, – he basically built a wire harness so he could work in the fields and play harmonica at the nice. same time. So he built a harness out of wire so that he could he could hold this harmonica that's by his mouth. Stifling creativity. Yep. yep. Oh, and then all they wanted was at. just that, that – that, those cotton fields picked – Tough life. Uh, So to build a diddly bow, as Ethan said, they would nail strings to a wall of a building, like his house. So he built a guitar on the side of his his house, and then they would take a bottle and shove it underneath the strings and basically pull it tight so then the strings would be taut enough so that they could actually make a tone. So um, that's how he basically got started on the guitar is through this diddly bow. And then he also played the Jews harp. And I'm not sure if you guys know what a Jews harp is. <clears throat> All right. So Genesis chapter four, verse seven, um, right before do Cain <laughs> kills Abel, <laughs> God gives him the Jews harp. Do you guys recall is that? Is that true? No, that's, is this that's, true? that's made up. Okay. <laughs> So no one knows what a juice. Harp no, is. I, I looked it up. It's a little, it's a little solid piece of metal with a reed oh in it, and you put it in God. your mouth and tongue it to change the pitch. Is it kind of like this juice harp? Oh, you got a juice harp! <laughs> oh, what? I, I bought a juice harp for the episode, Play so it. you guys can listen to it. its beautiful, Play beautiful it. sound. Oh, I've been practicing God. this. Yes. Tony's always putting Tony. in hundred and twenty percent. You got me. Uh, all right, everyone, shut up, because this thing will make your panties wet. Here we go. <laughs> Quick little Ooh. precursor. I'm probably going to delete Ethan's part, but keep no, this in no. somehow. <laughs> keep it all. All right, here we go. Here we go. That's what that is. It sounds like a didgeridoo. I've definitely heard that. Oh. Everyone has heard a di- everyone yep. has heard a Jew's harp, but they That's have no amazing. idea they've heard one. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I watched a lot of videos on how to play this thing. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm so glad you went the extra <laughs> you mile. Really, you really did it. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, when I read about it, I was like, how much are one of these? And I bought this thing on Amazon for five bucks, and oh it had Snoopy god. on the box. <laughs> what a steal. That's a Jew's harp for you. <laughs> uh, fun, fun, fun fact about the Jew's harp has nothing to do with the religion or the race. It, j- j- a Jew's harp comes from the word jaw. So it's a jaw harp because oh. you play it with your teeth and your jaw line, and it basically build, takes your whole body and turns it into an instrument. As the sound resonates through your whole body, ah, so yeah, okay. it but seems one thing pretty say, racist, but it's not. <laughs> and one thing to say about Robert, though, is like you just heard it, and you you know what that is. How do you make anything convincing and musical on that? Somehow, yeah. apparently, Robert did it. <laughs> apparently, yeah. he was very good at basically anything he touched. 
Like, he could make the harmonica great by itself, which is a little more easy to understand, but yeah. apparently he was also good at making music by, with this by itself, which I don't yeah, get. This but, thing is not a real instrument. <laughs> I don't mean to cut it down, but this is not a real instrument. <laughs> you, I think you've heard the whole extent of, of what the Jews harp can yeah. do. Yeah. So there's but, a little testament to his uh, yeah. talent. Yeah, he was talented. He was very talented. So by the time he was 17, he was playing parties and events. And this is where uh, the first myth about Robert Johnson needs to be busted. I don't know what myth you're trying to bust right now, so let's keep going. Okie dokie. Um, so everyone thinks that Robert was a horrible guitar player until uh, all at once he wasn't. And that is simply not the case. He didn't just switch 180 overnight. In reality, what the truth was is he was just a very middle-of-the-road player in an ocean of middle-of-the-road players. He he fell into the fuzz instantly. Like No one really knew who he was because he was nothing special. So that's kind of where the myth is born so everyone thought that he was this horrible guitar player in reality he wasn't he was just a normal guitar player um so it was around this time that he learned a little bit more about the guitar and he learned a little bit more about his favorite drink corn whiskey he, he learned like you to me he he learned to drink uh when he was 17 years old <gasps> and he drank a lot and he drank a lot <laughs> uh one one big problem with the whole uh story of robert johnson is this this idea of him being a terrible guitarist and then coming back in a very short time being a really good guitarist that fed into the whole myth of him selling his soul comes from a guy named Sonny Boy Williamson who was also kind of a blues player on the scene at the time. And that, that again, this is all after his death that, that people start telling stories, you know, and so he he kept telling this story and it got a, to a shorter and shorter time where Robert was so bad, and then six months later he showed back up and he was amazing, whereas in reality, when he came back, it was probably about two years later, and he had been playing constantly in this time. So he he was just getting better in a normal time span. Exactly, yeah. He just went to go learn the guitar over over some time, uh, just away from... Memphis or, or yeah. Arkansas where he was. So, yeah. So we'll we'll get more into exactly what happened in a little bit. Um, he started watching big names come through the area play, including established blues singer Willie Brown, who he would later have in one of his own songs. Uh, his his name in the lyrics. He, uh, Willie Brown didn't play part of his didn't play on his song. Um, Willie Brown could run a room and he could hold a crowd in the palm of his hands. Robert would watch him any chance he got, and he began to try and mimic Willie's playing. After getting his own guitar from the money he and his sister Carrie saved, he took the skills he learned around town to show off to whoever would listen. This acoustic guitar was a huge game changer for Robert because he was finally able to transport his music around town and be able to play for people unlike other instruments. Yeah, yeah. only slightly more portable than a diddly bow. But not as portable as the Jew harp. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it was like 1920s, so basically houses were like one board, so it can't be that hard. Yeah, he could have brought like, he probably could have transported his house. Yeah, that's, that's pretty true, yeah. Yeah, I think the house was just slightly larger than the diddly bow. Um, so he he loved to play his guitar at any and all times. Literally whenever he could, he would play it. He found out that the guitar was the quickest way to a woman's heart and 
the quickest way to get in their pants. And he loved women. Loved. You would say he mm. loved them to death. Um, so Robert <laughs> Don't continued give away to too much. <laughs> so oh. so uh, Robert continued to play and eventually teamed up with Willie Moore, another local guitarist. Women and whiskey are about the only two things that everyone that weighs in on the on, on Johnson can really agree about. Uh, yeah. So we're gonna we're about to yeah. actually delve into this a little bit. Robert gets married one time where he is truly in love, and it. It's really pretty tragic because when this falls through, it basically shapes his life of being a drifter. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, he was ready to settle down, and then he wasn't able to. Yep. But we'll get into that in uh, just a couple of minutes. So he was developing his method as both a bottleneck guitarist as well as a traditional finger-picking blues player. He would play both in the Delta, where Julia and Dusty lived, as well as in Memphis with the Spencer family, even making a record on one of his trips to the Bluff City for his family. But his life would soon change in a way he could have never predicted. Robert found his one true love. He met 14-year-old Virginia Travis in late 1928 when he was 17 years old. They had a whirlwind relationship, and they were married on February 17, 1928. They both had to lie about their age to be able to sign the marriage certificate that day. Robert loved her so much that he agreed to put aside music to work on a farm to provide for his new wife. And as we already touched on, Robert hated farming. Yeah, yeah. They said uh, in the book, it just basically said like, you saw Robert in a farm and on on the on in the fields, and it was like the weirdest sight because he was farming and nobody understood why. But the reason why is because he loved his woman. Yeah, he truly um, loved this this woman and or yeah. girl, girl, lady, girl. Uh, yeah, she's yeah, a girl. She's girl. She was. She's fourteen. <laughs> but but she's, yeah, I mean, he was a kid yeah. too. He was a kid too. Yeah, but I, I suppose it's pretty yeah. tragic. Yeah. There's mutual um, child love. And soon after they were married, she was pregnant with her first child, and Robert was ecstatic. Ecstatic. When she was nearing her birth, she went to go stay with her family to help support the new baby, and Robert agreed to stay behind to work more to make more money. He didn't know it, but when she left to go stay with her family, that would be the last time he would ever see his wife, and he would never have a chance to meet their child. While he was away, Robert decided to get his guitar back out and play his way up to meet the family and his new child. When he arrived at the house, he found out that Virginia and the baby had both died during childbirth. In addition to losing his wife and child, Virginia's family blamed Robert and the Blues for Virginia's death because he was out playing that devil music instead of being with his wife. And this is just one more of the little tidbits that snowball into his myth. Every every little chunk just adds in and compounds the myth yeah so uh this made robert very upset that his that that virginia's wife or virginia's family was mad at him um because he had no literally he just showed up like you you have to remember this is the late 20s and there aren't just telephones like he can't just call people and stuff like that and he was so he just made his way up and when he got there they were like she's dead like they're both dead he had literally been working to support them but that they just didn't believe that i mean yeah they didn't see music as a way to make money they saw it as like a passion and they saw blues music as the devil's music so they thought that basically the devil they thought that god was spiting 
Robert by killing Virginia and this baby because he's playing the blue music. Yeah. Yeah. So he got very upset with everything and he left the Virginia's family's house and denounced God and anything religious. Uh, And this plays into the legend of him selling his soul. It got so bad that people said he would, they would leave where he was because they thought that God was going to strike him down because he was saying such blasphemous things. And, um, you know, I don't know. I can't blame him on that. Um, I say, yeah, what they said when he got drunk, he would just go off. Yeah. Like when he started getting drunk. Why, God, yeah, why have you done this to me? Super horrible things. Yep, in that exact tone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very passionate like it's that. It's pretty over the top back in the 20s, man. <laughs> I want to do it so uh, bad. So, so now Robert had nowhere to go and he had no family. So he decided to move back in with Julia and Dusty. Even though he liked his Memphis family more, the music was more his style down in the Delta, so he decided to stay there, even though Dusty still tried to get him to work in the fields and would beat him when he refused. He would continue to go to any bars he could to watch anyone he could, and then try to emulate their playing. Willie Brown was back in the area with a man named Eddie Sunhouse Jr., who Austin mentioned a little bit ago. Um, He was another skilled player and... Robert loved to watch him. Every time Willie and House would take breaks to go out and smoke, Robert would grab their guitar and he would play during the breaks. Robert was fine, but that's not what the crowd came to hear, so they wanted they basically <coughs> booed him off the stage. There's a recording of Son telling a story of how Robert was playing during one of the breaks and the crowd some a member from the crowd actually came outside and said uh, that he was running them crazy is verbatim what he said. And so they had to run back in and take the guitar from him, tell him to get off stage. Well, yeah, yeah, and that same guy told stories also about Robert coming up to them like between songs and being like, you guys ready for a break yet? Are you gonna go? You guys gonna go take a break yet? <laughs> so it's probably annoying. you know the wanted just wanted to play uh, any second he could play exactly just yeah. any any side yeah as much as he could to whoever he could he loved to play yeah. for people and this right here builds into the uh, to the legend itself that he was a bad player because anytime he would play people would go grab the talent and basically say this guy has to get off the stage when in reality like we said he's just a normal guitar player. And people were getting upset because he was playing a certain style, and it's not with what the people wanted to hear. They wanted to hear, you know, Willie Brown and 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 Son. So when this guy got up and played, they were just like, "I don't want to hear this." It, it it would basically be like if you if you went to go see Eric Clapton, and then a, just a member of the crowd just went up and started playing guitar. Like even if it's good, you're like, "I don't want to get off the stage." I didn't pay for <laughs> yeah. this. Exactly. Yeah, it's like I don't care about this. You're fine. I don't care about you. Please stop burn playing. This mother to the ground. Um, And so Willie and House would come back in and kick him off the stage. But one thing continued to bug him throughout everything that he was doing. He really wanted to meet his biological father, Noah Johnson. And so he headed to Hazelhurst, Mississippi to try and meet him. And this search for his dad would birth one of the biggest legends in music history. So when he was gone for roughly a year, and when he came back, he was an incredible guitar player. So Austin will now tell us what the legend is. So basically, the long and short of this legend is that Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil at a crossroads where two roads meet to become a a blues legend. And that's all fed into by 
supposedly how short this time period from him being terrible to amazing was. Um, but there is a lot that f- that feeds into this from what I was reading that uh, makes it sound like a big part of this is a legend of another blues player at the time named Tommy Johnson. And again, this is all pat after Robert has died. None of this was during his life. So uh, Lindell Johnson, Tommy Johnson's brother, uh, who was also involved in blues, both of them were, was giving an interview where he was telling the story that his brother Tommy had told him where he's told him, if you go to a crossroads where any two roads meet and you're there at midnight, if you get there 15 minutes before midnight so that you're playing a song when midnight strikes, a big black man will come and take your guitar, he'll tune it, play you a song, and then hand it back to you. And that's how I learned every song I've written. And basically, over the years, a lot of people... Uh, it's thought mistook that this was about Robert Johnson rather than Tommy Johnson. But then there are, are so many things with Robert Johnson's music, like hellhounds on my, on my trail and just all, yeah, all of his, his imagery with the devil that kind of fuels this. So it could very well be Tommy Johnson that was, t- that told this story and it got adopted to Robert Johnson. Yeah, and and to go off of the legend, um, when the big black man would come and grab the guitar from you, he would walk up behind you, and he would basically take the guitar yeah, from you. Yep. So he would, and, and you weren't allowed to look at him the whole yep, time. You don't look at the big black. So man. you just stare forward while he tunes your guitar, plays the song. If you look back, then basically the 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 trade is is off, the deal's off, and he'll like you'll get your guitar back, and then you won't get it. So, yeah. um, so that's the big thing. And yeah, he, I think that and. Robert Johnson kind of knew about this myth like while he was alive like he had heard of it and stuff like that. I think he just kind of played it. I think yeah, like, I think he I think just kind of liked a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think I he kind of just liked kind of would just say things almost joking. But again, I from yeah. everything I heard, I don't think this legend about him was was really told about him till after he died, till after people found out what an amazing musician he was <laughs> and people were actively trying to find his biography. Every they, again, they had to go all by hearsay from from people. So people were feeding this legend. Yeah, and I, I because I, it is a romantic idea. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that he knew that he was a really good and, guitar player. People started seeking him out, and he eventually got record deals and things like that. So I think that he like, I think he eventually knew like I am a good guitar player. So I think he just like we said, just kind of leaned into it and was like, like yeah, you know, like I don't. I, may sold my soul like i don't know i may be you know mythically good instead of just really good like things like that i think that he just liked it and and we're gonna meet a player very very soon who um also helps uh helps him to lean into this um to this really pretty dark imagery um by the things that he does and so let's get into that right now because that i think that that's more interesting than this legend that that is born because of him being gone so here's one thing one thing you got to take from this whole episode is obviously everything we have about robert johnson is hearsay so yeah it's just a real fun story it's a very fun it's a very fun story yeah absolutely but we can't deny that he is a blues legend because we have his actual recordings right he is incredibly yes, so good. Yes. There is at least that. Yeah. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, so let's – so here's what really happened. 
Robert never found his father in Hazelhurst, and even the people of Hazelhurst said the name sounded familiar, but they couldn't really picture him or remember him. But you have to remember, this was 20 years in the making. So think about someone from your hometown that was, you know, there 20 years ago and then going to ask people about him. A lot of people might not remember him, you know, things like that. So when he wasn't able to find Noah, his father, he did what he knew best. He got out his guitar and played for whoever would listen. And he would listen to anyone when he wasn't playing. One person that caught Robert's attention was Isaiah Ike Zimmerman, who Robert said was the best guitar player he had ever seen. Playing both finger-picking style and bottleneck style, using a bone as his slide on his Gibson guitar, Ike could play anything. And I swear... so much cooler than just... Having an actual metal or glass yeah, slide. way cooler than <laughs> yeah. glass. Uh, this is the guy that is going to help birth the, like, the, this is the guy that I was speaking of that, like, loves the dark and, and everything like that. He loved the macabre. Like, I, I swear he lived for it. On top of having <laughs> a bone for a slide, Ike's favorite time and place to practice was in a graveyard at midnight. They also allude and Can't you Hear the Wind Howl that maybe Robert picked him because he wasn't very well known. Because, like, they, they do this little jump cut where they're obviously asking each person they've interviewed prior if they've ever heard of Ike Zimmerman, like, back to back to back. And they just cut to them saying, nope, 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 nope. And then they kind of allude to the fact that maybe Robert had actually picked him because he wasn't well known. Right. So he could learn everything he could and then exactly become this a, unknown a person. Legend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, bail on Ike and, and, and then no one would realize that he had learned from anyone. Everyone think that he learned yeah. from Satan himself. I do want to say when I was reading the story and kind of picturing it in my head, like I pictured that he actually was learning from the devil, but like it wasn't the way that it went. It was just like the devil meeting with him every Tuesday afternoon for guitar lessons, like how like a six year old does. <laughs> All right. And it's like it's like the devil like in his full now like we're gonna regalia. learn pentatonic scales today, buddy. Exactly, yeah. And he's like, and, and, yeah, the devil's just like, oh no, no, put your put your ring finger on the fourth fret. Hey, no, oh, you oh, need to support. No, oh, you're with oh, your thumb more. You need <laughs> to get your thumb more against the back. Yeah, it's just All right now. You need so, to keep your elbow at a good positive position. Show me, right, show me now, those scales I gave you last no, week. Yeah, I don't think right. you've actually I don't think you've been practicing. Yeah, Honestly, I want you I want I you to run them you go from the top it. down and then I want you to pick them back up to the top. So top down from yeah. the bottom back up. <laughs> like and the devil at half time, it's half like time, that, half time. The devil going SNL sketch where Garth Brooks is trying to sell his <laughs> yeah. soul to the devil and Will Ferrell. <laughs> is the devil? What kind of guitar is that? It's the sinewy bones from the depths of hell. Ah. <laughs> uh, Strat, strat, strat. <laughs> uh, he keeps like writing songs. They're all terrible. <laughs> He's like, got my my boogie shoes on. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's like that's the only thing I could picture the whole time. It's just like him going home to his wife, and he's like, God, this kid is gonna be the death of me. He's gonna be the but, death of me. But we agreed. But we agreed. <laughs> I got his soul, so I, it's not refundable. So uh, Ike said that he really liked to play in these graveyards. I, here's my opinion. I think Ike is the devil. That's what I think. Just he's, because hey man, the maybe. Devil. he likes the macabre. Uh, there's a know, picture man. of him in my book, and he is just like. He just has like these glowing white eyes. Like it's a very frightening photo. I'll I'll uh, post it on the the Facebook page or I'll post it on social media as one of our posts because it's like it's a frightening photo. But um, so I think that that's how we learn from the devil. 
and the devil was Ike. So he liked to play in the cemetery because it was a quiet place that people didn't bother him. Nobody went into a cemetery, so he would just go play there at night. But it, it seems pretty, pretty weird. But all the same, Ike saw potential in Robert, who is now going by RL, and offered to teach him how to play. He also he also offered to uh, let Robert live with him and his family. He took Robert into the cemetery with him, and over the next year, he taught Robert to be an incredible guitar player. Ike took him out on the road where they played basically anywhere they could together. Uh, and while they were in Hazelhurst, Robert also met another love, Virgie Jane Smith, who he got pregnant. Virgie was from a very conservative home and refused to let Robert be in the picture, and they refused to let Virgie go with Robert. This again broke Robert's heart. He was going to now lose two children, and so this just made him hate, hate religion and hate everything more. It made him more of a drifter because he realized he didn't have any true loves in this world. Um, he needed someone to confide in after losing uh, Virgie and his second child, and that person would be Callie Kraft, another local woman. She was much older, and all she wanted to do was please Robert in any way she could. He did not, and he, and in contrast, he did not give a goddamn shit about Callie Kraft. <laughs> not give a single care. But they did get married on May 4th, 1931. She waited on him hand and foot, and he, like I said, could not care less. He immediately stepped out on her, looking for women whenever he could, and would continue to do this whenever he pleased. And he would just leave for like months on end. Like without telling her. She had children. Yeah. She had children and, and he would just like just bail. Like he would just boom, I'm out. And then just come Bye. back and be well, like. Well, another thing is he made them keep the secret, or the marriage very secret. Very few people even knew about it because he didn't yeah. want it to impede on his chances with other women. <laughs> didn't want it, <laughs> did not want anyone to know, which is what you want in a marriage. That's, that's yeah, what, yeah. Brittany and Solid I have a very uh, tight pact where we don't tell anyone we're married. That's a titanium foundation <laughs> right there. Good friends. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's rock solid. Uh, so some months later, Robert and Virgie's son, Claude Johnson, was born. Robert again tried to get with the family, but they again refused. And they refused even more now that he was a married man. And shortly after that, Callie became ill and Robert... Ike and Callie left Hazelhurst to head back to the Delta to show off his new skills. Um, basically, as soon as they got to the Delta, they just dropped Callie off wherever they were at and went and played their shows. And she died in 1933, and he felt literally nothing about it. He yeah. did nothing about didn't like really a, change his life at all. Huh, like, didn't huh, like plan a, a, a funeral or anything like that. I don't even think she was sent back to Hazelhurst to be married or to be buried. It was just like, oh, hey, your Can wife we just died get her today. In the dirt? Yeah, and let he's me just like let me sum up this tragedy in one sentence. Rambling on my mind. <laughs> bingo bingo so, yeah he that's the story he was pretty relieved when she finally died yeah but back in the delta in early 1932 robert was ready to show off what he had learned he could play both the melody and the bass parts by himself using his very long slender fingers he could pick slide play bass notes and sing all simultaneously, which is still almost unheard of in music today by one artist. 
Yeah. When I so when I first listened to when we first agreed to do this to do Robert Johnson, um, I listened to some of his stuff that I had never heard before, and I was like, "This isn't like this is fine. This is like whatever. It's just you know." it's it's 1930s blues music it's whatever and then after i finished reading the book and like really doing the research and realizing what i was hearing was one person i was like this is incredible oh like, it's crazy yeah. yeah uh one so one thing is i i was reading a story where keith richards from rolling stones because this this is one thing we're going to get into towards the end is everyone he actually influenced and everyone in the stones was obsessed with robert johnson and keith richards was saying the first time he heard a recording of robert he was like who's the guy playing alongside him and everyone was like it's only him he's like no there's no way and if you uh a really good uh example is um what is it Uh, i think i'll dust my broom yeah it it's the classic blues the boom but he is doing that like lead over the top of it where it's like yeah like the high slot like the yeah he's like strumming while he's plucking at the same time it's insane and and then and then he like harmonizes with himself like high high notes and low notes at the same time so when he does like that like it's all it's all one person so when you listen if you go listen to this it's one person playing and singing in one take yeah it's it sounds incredible it's it's so crazy how good he was it really does add it does give credence to the myth yes yes it does yeah he sounds devilishly good um so there you go thank you there you go thank you guys um so once he got back into the delta he went to where willie brown and house were playing and this scene that i'm about to set up is legit like a movie when i was reading it i was like this is i could see this being shot cinematically so he went Um, where they were playing and he stood outside questioning his abilities but Ike who was with him basically put his hand on his shoulder and just said I taught you and with that he walked into the juke where they were playing he then made his way through the crowd the whole time while they were playing and like kind of watching him walk to the front and he had his guitar on his back and like he made it, he got to the front of the stage and basically just watched them from the ground onto the stage. They stopped playing and heckled him for a little bit, basically saying like, hey, it's little Robert. Welcome. Like, what are you doing back here? Whatever. And, and so he just asked if he could take their spot for a minute and got up on stage and proceeded to blow the entire room away. Willie and House stood off stage with their jaws open. And once he was done, Robert sat back in his chair and smiled. He had done it. It's it's kind of like that movie with um the kid from the Karate Kid and Steve Vai. They have that battle at the end. It's kind of like that. Yeah, you're talking about the movie Crossroads about the search for Robert Johnson's missing song. Oh, uh, oh. You're talking about the <laughs> yeah. The, yeah we're not even going to try yeah. to recreate yeah. this bit because <laughs> yeah, Ethan put this never... in the outline and I made the mistake of asking him beforehand if this was meant to be a joke and he had no idea that this movie he was jokingly referencing is about Robert Johnson. <laughs> movie is called Crossroads. <laughs> it's called Crossroads and you it know, is the kid I from just, Karate Kid. I had, I had only seen the ending scene where they're doing the guitar <laughs> battle with Steve I, so I didn't have much context. I ruined a, what could have been a very fun Could have been, could have been good, better. Yeah. Thank yeah. God. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. there's a movie. There's a, uh, there is actually a, a, a legit you can watch it if theatrical you want, movie. I yeah, I've heard it's fine. It's just, just watch the end. Just watch the very end. It's, it's the coolest part. Yeah, really, really It's a kid from Karate on. Kid. And he does a fucking sweet. Uh, he does some sweeping while finger picking. It's so cool. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, that's fine. I mean, he's obviously not actually doing it, but it's still cool. <laughs> no, it's no splits kick. 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's no, yep. Mr. Miyagi. I don't know. I don't know much about either of those movies. Um, (laughs) So he could now play whatever he wanted, and he could get whoever he wanted, and he wanted everyone within reach. No woman was off limits, and that would time and time again come back and bite him in the ass. He was drinking heavier than ever, and he hated God more than ever, now having lost two children. He did again try a couple times to see his son and his baby mama, Virgie, but was always turned away. He was living super rough at this time in his life. I really wish I could remember who it was, but um, in one of the accounts I was listening to, uh, a blues player at the time that he was well acquainted, acquainted with basically was like, Robert could not fight his way out of a wet paper bag, but he would start a fight with anyone when he was drinking. He was like, there'd be a group of five or six guys, and he would jump one of them, and you were just as liable to get your ass kicked as he was. Yeah. Yeah. You, yep. Because yeah, he, would immediately he get couldn't back it up, and you would instantly have to help him. Yeah. Yeah. He basically didn't give a shit about his life. Like, he, yeah. he liked what he was doing, but he was just like... I think he was. I think he lived the mentality where he's like, "I could die tomorrow, so I'm going to make today yeah, really good." Yeah, I don't. I think he truly didn't care. He just yeah. Playing music was the only thought in his mind, and when he wasn't doing that, it was just I'll do. I not not I'm on autopilot. Yep, yep. So he just basically continued to get more and more reckless in his entire uh, life. Drink more whiskey. Yep. So he decided to live in a town in Mississippi called Hattiesburg. He lived here because it had a train system that could easily take him anywhere, and there weren't many guitar players in town. There's a lot of piano players, but not many guitar players, so he didn't have a lot of competition, and since he was so good, he could make a super easy living there, and he could get all the cheap booze and easy women he wanted. He met a player in Jackson, near Hattiesburg, named Johnny Temple, who showed him how to play a stompin' bass. Then, in return, Robert showed Temple his famous boogie shuffle, his signature style. And Temple would take this and record one of his songs in 1934 with this style. And that destroyed Robert's trust because um, everyone thought that Johnny had come up with this boogie style that we're referring to. And I think the boogie style is kind of like that boom, 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 do like it's you know it's that figure picking yeah. style and stuff like that and so which is the classic blues sound but a lot of these stories posit that that sound wouldn't be around without Robert Johnson yeah yeah he kind of and if you look listen to him. his complete recorded collection of forty songs most of them have that that line underneath yeah yeah we'll yeah we'll get into it in a little bit because it's him him in the studio is super fun. Um, so yeah. he was now traveling all over Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee, playing almost every night of the week. He would play, then sleep a tiny bit, maybe, then jump on a train and travel to another town to play the next night. And the whole time he was doing this, he was also drinking and banging whatever he could. Um, he would sometimes stick around for a few days and then just disappear without telling anyone. He was talented enough to get jobs in jukes, which are modern-day bars, on the weekends which was big, big money. He was able to play anything and everything the crowd requested, which meant big tips, crazy crowds, and any women he chose. And he could do all of this with no recorded music of his own. And all of this just, again, adds to his his myth because he would he would show up in towns so far away and just be completely ready to play and he was traveling on trains which are dirty and all that but he would still show up in his suit 
completely beaten out, looking like no dust on it, looking clean. He apparently always looked really good when he played, and he was playing all over the place, riding trains, getting there. Yeah, yeah, they said that he could basically take his clothes, throw them in a bag for days, and then just pop them out, and they'd be good to go. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, so he did settle down with a woman named Estella Coleman in Helena, Alabama for a little while. He taught her son, Robert Lockwood, his guitar techniques, and Robert got good enough to eventually go out on the road with Johnson. He really enjoyed his time with the Colemans, but the urge to go out and play on the road again um, was just too much. So he had to go out and he took Robert Lockwood with him. They played together until late 1935 when Lockwood accidentally ran over Johnson with the truck. Johnson was fine. That'll that'll ruin the friendship. (laughs) That'll ruin any friendship. I got to get run over like three or four times. I'm pretty trustworthy (sighs) before I think about ending a friendship. I'm sure there's a logical explanation. About the sixth time, I'm starting to question where things are at. Exactly. (laughs) Do that one more time. We're really going to have to have a long talk. Um, <laughs> then we'll see where we stand. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's over, but like we will figure it out. <laughs> but I am a little bit peeved. <laughs> so Johnson was fine with this, but Lockwood felt bad about what he had done, and so he backed off, moving back to Helena to be with his family. Robert continued out on the road and um, playing whenever he could, and he was just a year away from, from becoming an official recording artist. He just didn't know it yet. Music store owners were the pulse of the music industry, and H.C. Spire was no different. They would listen to artists who came into their shops, and if they heard anything that interested them, they took note. And from time to time, labels would come around asking for names. Spire was asked by Art Satherly, who was the director for Volkoyan Records. In the fall of 1936, Robert went into Spire's shop to show off his stuff. He auditioned and then made another record to uh, play for himself. He just basically asked to paid to use the recorder in there and made a record just for himself. Um, Spire told him that he would send his stuff to Volkian and they would contact him if they liked it. And lo and behold, they did like it. And they contacted him to tell him they were bringing him to San Antonio to record. He went back to Memphis and went to a photography studio to have his photo taken now that he was a real artist. He borrowed a pinstripe suit and a hat from his stepbrother and held his guitar in hand. And this is one of the two photos of Robert that still exists. I saw an article about a fake third photo that was posted on eBay. And uh, I don't really know much story about it, but it's it's just a photo of two people standing there one has a guitar and that's all there really was to it is that it was found to be fake but it was being portrayed as a a third picture i think i know the one you're talking about and i'm pretty sure that is confirmed fake Mm -hmm. but there is supposedly a third photo that uh his sister owned and never gave to anyone else so only the family ever saw it and uh um There was, what was his name? The first person that set out to do a biography on Robert Johnson way back, he supposedly saw it as well. And it was supposed to be a picture of a guy in a a Navy suit and another guy standing there with his arm around him. And the the kid in the Navy suit was supposed to be Robert's nephew uh, on his first uh, visit back from deployment from the Navy. 
but I again, uh, that's never actually been seen. So who knows? yeah, I think that I think the guy you're talking about, and I can't remember his name either. The only name that's coming to mind is Art Vandalay from Seinfeld, and mm. I think that I'm pretty close there. But like, it's I definitely think I gotta not, say though. it's probably not it. <laughs> definitely kind of close, <laughs> but um, Could but the it. guy uh, who I will now refer to as Art Vandalay, um, uh, basically convinced. Robert's sister to give him the whole estate so he could have that photo and, and is not releasing it basically so there might mm. be a third one that exists but it, it belongs to art so we'll never see it um, so shortly after uh, he had this photo taken the one in him of him in the pinstripe suit a week before Thanksgiving 1936 Robert was met by Ernie Ortel from Vocalin and his wife Marie They drove to Memphis from San Antonio over the next three days. They were worried to be seen with Robert in some of the more uh, racist states down in the South. So they did something where they had Robert drive the whole way uh, to make it basically look like he was their driver. And this is something that was pretty common back in the day. Uh, This was how whites and blacks would hang out, basically, is to make it look like the the blacks were the help. Uh, Pretty, pretty sad. Um, so uh, Robert also had to stay in colored-only hotels on their drive. So they would get to where they were going, and then and then uh, the Ordos would go and stay in one hotel, and then Robert would stay in another hotel. But they eventually made it on Sunday, November 22nd, where they met Don Law, another person from Volklian. Robert, again, had to stay in a colored-only hotel. So they split up, ready to record the next morning, and Robert took the evening to go out and explore San Antonio and try to play for some extra money. He was quickly beaten, and his guitar was destroyed, and he was arrested for vagrancy. He called Don, and Don had to come to the station to bail him out. He gave Robert 45 cents for breakfast the next morning, and Robert quickly spent that money on a prostitute. As you do. So while Don was at breakfast, uh, actually Don's grandson, I believe, tells this story that while Don was at breakfast, he got a call while he was at breakfast and it was it was Robert on the phone and Robert told him that he had a lady in the room and uh, that she was kind of lonely and that uh, she was charging him 50 cents to uh, not be lonely yeah, anymore. He said, he, this is what he said. Nickel. He said. He said, she wants 50 cents, but I lacks a nickel. Oh, man. Yeah, that's how it goes. <laughs> We've all been there, though. Yeah, um, what a... <laughs> wow. We've man, all been a nickel, nickel short. short. That's pricey. Oh, man, more times than I could count. <laughs> so uh, on Monday morning, they found Robert another guitar. They had to literally bring in a guitar, so Robert had something to play because it was destroyed. And they planned to start recording at the Gunter Hotel. Like the penguin from Adventure Time. His name is yeah, Gunther. I mean, it's Gunter. It's not Gunther. Yeah. No, it's, it's Gunter. Oh, okay. In, in, in yeah, it's Adventure probably named Time after too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't even know that that Probably. needed to be referenced in any way. I'm into it. I like the. <laughs> I, I like the pop it. culture reference. It. That's what's keeping us on. The, that's what's keeping the oh, downloads high. That's what's keeping high. us going. Yeah. <laughs> that's what's keeping our heads that's above the water, man. I love. They hear that and they're like, "I I am love Go Gurt. I love toaster strudels and I love the mass singer. Those are three things that I love and they're very <laughs> relevant." There we go. I'm a man of the people. 
Um, so uh, at it. this Gunter Hotel, they had to make a studio out of two hotel rooms that were basically just forced together or put together. They weren't forced together. They were built together. Um, Robert was forced to enter the hotel through the colored entrance in the back. But at 10 a.m. on November 23rd, 1936, Robert started his career as a bona fide recording artist. And another rumor was born from this session, which Austin will explain right now. A big legend of Robert recording is that he would always sit in a corner facing away from everyone as he recorded. And the obviously first rumor about this was that he was too shy to play in front of people or have people watch him when he played. But that's quickly uh, refuted by all any any firsthand account of seeing him play. People were always like he was a performer. He was like he had people going. He had people's ears like he was very much a performer, so it wasn't that. And then, and in the, the fact that he would play literally anywhere at any time, yeah, he had no qualms playing for anyone. He wanted at any people time. to see him play. Yeah. And so another explanation was the idea that he was corner loading, which is this idea that if you sing into a corner, so all the sound is bouncing back at you, it's going to make you sound a lot fuller, a lot bigger. You know, like if you sing in your shower or something where it's really confined. And But that also doesn't make sense because that's only something really – he doesn't have any recording experience at this time. So he's not going to know that that's going to make him sound better on rec- on record, which I don't know. But that's also not the actual explanation anyway, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, they, everyone said that he would have no idea that corner loading was a thing. Yeah, because first have to of have all, that's kind like of technical experience. Yeah, yeah. It's like an engineering – thing that you would know like you would know this is how you should do it and everywhere he played he basically played in the middle of the room and so he had no corners to load into um so here is the truth the truth is uh not that he he didn't do that he did not sit in the he did not sit in the play in the corner at all um so he did for something else which we will get to shortly uh but he basically just played in the room how he would normally record he sat on a chair facing the mic which was facing the room where the where the booth was and he played for the um the the director the engineer in the booth um so robert recorded 16 songs on his first day which was a shitload for a first timer and all of his roughly a shitload yeah approximately i don't want to i don't approximately wanna, a butt ton and a half i'm not trying to oversell robert but yeah that was a that was a crap ton uh, for his first day um and the something that was really unique about Robert was all of his takes basically sounded exactly like one of each other. So he recorded two he recorded eight songs, 16 takes. He recorded two takes of every song and um when when people played and recorded back in these days, first they were songs that had never been heard before, which is pretty I mean pretty common for recording artists, but they would play one like really really fast and up tempo and then they would play the same song but on the second take they would basically make it a brand new song. So they would play it however they were feeling it. They wouldn't play it um, in any specific way. But Robert didn't believe that that's how it should be done. He saw his songs as completed works of art, and they were meant to be played a certain way. So he would write a song that was meant to be played fast and have this, um, you know, this really upbeat tempo and and so the the walking bass and everything like that and so that's how he would play that song and if if it had a slide guitar he would do this he would play it the exact same way every single time um it was so much so that when you listen to the songs the the 
like they said there was like eight seconds difference between the songs, which is super, super small for recording with no mm-hmm. metronome or anything like that. And the only reason that he even sped it up or down at all was because he had to make the song fit on the one side of a 45 record. And so he would speed it up or slow it down. So he would basically fill the entire record. So all the songs are really pretty close in uh, length to each other, which he did intentionally. Um, So at the end of the day, he had eight songs recorded and $100 in his pocket. He was brought back on Wednesday to record more. And during this section, he was asked to play for another group who was recording during that day. Um, And it was during this time that he played facing the wall in the corner. So um, this is where the the legend was born that he did this, but he did not do it because he was embarrassed or shy, but rather because he didn't want people watching him play so they could steal his playing style. Eddie Van Halen used to do the same thing while he was doing the live performances of the song Eruption that bleeds into the song You Really Got Me. He would turn away from the crowd so that people couldn't see that finger tapping that he was doing. Yeah, he just didn't want anyone stealing his his playing. Like, he didn't want to teach yeah. anyone how to do it unintentionally. And he <laughs> fucking lessons ain't free, bub. Bingo. That's right. And he, yeah. he learned this lesson after playing with Johnny Temple um, and when Johnny Temple took his, his playing style and, and recorded it before him. So he vowed to never let people see him play technically again. Um, he didn't learn it from Johnny. He learned it because of Johnny, because of that rat Johnny. Exactly. Exactly. Freaking, yeah. freaking, yeah, yeah. Little rat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he then recorded <laughs> on Friday um, where he recorded the most famous song of his, Crossroad Blues. And in it, he never once mentions the devil or anything even remotely anti Christian or anti uh, uh, religious. In fact, it's actually a fairly religious song. If you listen to it pretty closely, he talks about getting on his knees and, and begging for forgiveness. And then this is actually the song where he mentions Willie Brown, which I mentioned earlier. So pretty cool. Uh, his most famous song at this time, though, was Terraplane Blues. Um, that was his biggest hit at the time. But now it's Crossroad Blues. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the legend, the Crossroads legend. Um, and so they see this song and they immediately listen to it. Also Clapton redid it and made it huge. But, yeah. Uh, so another little thing that kind of adds to the legend and all is that he he was from the Delta in Mississippi, and this is like the capital of like fire and brimstone. The devil is like a real entity, a real life thing, and so naturally people hearing him he does have a lot of songs about the devil but a lot of other accounts will say that it was kind of like a humorous thing for him it wasn't actually meant to be about the devil but people were interpreting it as you know this is like this this real thing because it was in mississippi where everything was so literal as far as the devil's concerned that it kind of fed into that yeah yeah they would take everything so literally so it's just one other little thing. Yeah, it, like Austin said earlier in the episode, it's not like one thing happened to make the legend. It's all these little things that just build yeah. on each other to build Robert Johnson into the legend that he is today. It's like any kind of theory you read into, everything you see about it is just going to read. If you want to believe that, it's going to add to it. Yeah, exactly. Yep, You're just building your own argument up. Uh, yeah. So after he was done recording on that Friday... 
uh, he headed back to the Delta. It was actually on Sunday. He had to stay until they were done recording other artists on Sunday, and then he rode back with them to the Delta to round out 1936. And he did the standard womanizing, drinking, and playing wherever he could. His songs would be released through 1937 and 1938 on jukeboxes throughout the South and slightly beyond. He also recruited a new partner in the early month of 1937, Johnny Shines. Johnny Shines was sent from Arkansas to Helena, where Robert was, to try and beat him at the guitar. He literally was sent by someone else. Like They were like, hey, Johnny Shines, you can probably beat Robert Johnson. Like You should go down and try and basically knock him down a few pegs. So he showed up. Guitar hit, man. Yeah, yeah. And so he showed up, and Robert literally left him speechless. Like he, he was like, I'm not going to be able to beat this guy. And so... Not only did Shines not beat him, he ended up joining Robert on the road for a short time. If you can't beat him, join him. Absolutely. That's right. Did it right. That old adage. Uh, so he was then asked to come to Dallas to have a follow-up session after his first records were selling well enough to be considered successes. He took a train down to Texas and arrived on June 18, 1937. He again found a blacks-only hotel and went exploring the city. He began recording the next day, again coming in through the back door, and he recorded two takes of eight songs, again 16 takes total, in the sweltering Texas summer heat. And from all accounts of this, it was like 100 degrees in there, and it was like not just hot and like uncomfortable, but actually like physically unbearable. Yeah. Uh, they said it... Like they would have a fan on in between takes and then they'd have to turn it off during takes. Well, and they would even fill buckets of ice to put underneath the fans yeah. to blow... To try and blow cold to air. To blow cold, cold air. air. Yeah. yeah, it was like yeah. dangerously hot in there. And they were in like yeah. a like a wooden warehouse and they were just baking. And and yep. this is where he mm. recorded 16 takes, and which is crazy. It's crazy that he did that normally it's crazy that he did that in the hotel under regular circumstances yeah so, that, yeah. so then to do it in this was nuts uh and he and again he did it like he took played the songs exactly like each other and he basically he didn't even seem affected by this heat or anything like that he just yep. did what he had to do so after um another day of recording on sunday he left dallas to travel up north to rejoin with um his friend shines they traveled through texas and arkansas while Shines and Robert were traveling, Robert's music was being discovered in New York by a man named John Henry Hammond. He was a rich white man who was really interested in black blues music. He had written an article in a New York magazine praising Robert Johnson and his music. Robert, unfortunately, never found out about it while he was alive. He had now. And this is this sucks because this guy is is ramping up to make Robert a legend. Yeah. Like so shortly after he does that. If if Robert would have been alive one more year, he probably would have been a famous musician. He probably would have been yeah. some, he probably would have been a household name like yeah. you know, like BB King or something like that. But he would have at least had success that he could have enjoyed in his life. Exactly. Which as we're going to get to, he got none of. Yep. Um, so he had now left Shines behind and was now as far north as St. Louis before he eventually headed back down to Memphis to go see his Spencer family. <coughs> Shine actually talks about this, and he said that this happened like three or four times where they would like be somewhere together and Robert would just leave yeah. him. 
yeah, just walk out, get on the <laughs> said, train. Hey, when you hear yep. that call, yeah, yeah. Uh, there were there Oops. were there were times where Shines would have to like chase him from place to place. Like he was like, yeah, I think yeah. you're supposed to be in St. Louis, and then he gets to St. Louis, and then all once he's like, Robert just went back down to Arkansas. Like then he had to just chase him <laughs> down to Arkansas. Like Robert did. Chasing Robert him down. like preferred to be alone like if people were with him he was yeah. like cool like you're hanging out with me but he would just be in the middle of a party be there for a day and then just walk out not tell anyone anything and then he would be a thousand miles away the next day like hey let me sum this up for you guys in one sentence rambling on my mind, <laughs> yeah, on my mind. yep yep that's so, that that's his only true love that's how it goes yep after he lost virginia rambling was his only true love um, when they were in Memphis in December 1937, the house he and Shines were in were, uh, burned down. He was staying in this little boarding house, and it just burned down. It was super shitty, burned down. They both lost their guitars, but luckily Robert, who was good at just about every instrument he touched, pulled a harmonica out of his pocket and started playing it. He and Shines made their way north and very shortly made enough money to buy a new guitar for both of them. And they bought, like, nicer guitars than the ones they had before they literally caused a road jam on highway 61 because so many people were stopping to listen to him play harmonica and shines was singing while he's playing harmonica that's all that they had was playing those yeah. two things and <clears throat> they had to get that's... a cop to direct traffic because the jam was so bad yeah again a little easier to make its own instrument than a jew's heart but supposedly he could do that too yeah god this juice heart was a good purchase. Is it going? <laughs> <Is it> going? <laughs> Get, give me some. I can cut a little it bit. Give me, a, okay. give me a little bit. I'm down to Mississippi. I'm down on my mind. I can't do it. I'm not going to do that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh boy. Suddenly, suddenly we have to cut it all now. Um, <laughs> no, I'm going to put a little bit of you. Bambered a minute um, in there. <laughs> so they, again, traveled and played with their new guitars and harmonica and everything like that. And it was around this time that Robert took the other photo that is in existence, the photo of him in just a white shirt and overalls. Um, and, and when I was reading about it, they said the first one was recording artist uh, Robert Johnson. He looks really, really great. And he's, you know, smiling and stuff like that. And this photo, he is just like very somber looking and very stoic. And he's just in a white t-shirt. And they said, this is blues Robert Johnson. Like this is the true Robert Johnson right here. He's just, you know, it was just a dime store photo and, and he's just, he's just being him. He's doing him better than you can do you. I don't know. Um, so shines and Robert eventually met up with a man named Calvin Frazier, who was shines cousin. Frazier had just been arrested for killing a couple people who were attacking him. The judge told them that they needed to run away or they would be thrown in jail or worse. So Shines, Frazier, and Robert all agreed to make their way up to Canada. They made their way up through the states, making it to Chicago. From there, they went to Detroit, Buffalo, and eventually made it to New York City. I don't know why they didn't go to Canada. Like, they literally made it almost to Canada and then just immediately booked. Buffalo is literally on the other side of the river. Yeah, yeah, they just like I think they made it to Buffalo and then they're like, "Let's go to New York instead." And that's what they did. <laughs> um so when they were there, Robert tried to make it onto the Major Bowes Amateur Hour, which was a radio show where unknown players would be chosen to be on the show to perform. And uh Frank Sinatra was actually on the show in the mid 30s before he was famous. I think he was with a group of player or singers. Um but 
thousands and thousands of people would try out for this. Uh, in the end, he was not chosen to be on the show, which was disappointing to him, but not the end of the world. He did what he did best in the time of this loss, and he banged women, drank booze, and bailed to another city. He made his way back to Chicago, and after three months, he found himself back in Helena. He then jumped back up to Memphis to see his family, where his sister Carrie told him that he should go to the hospital. He'd been having some pain in his stomach and was diagnosed with a stomach ulcer. I had a stomach ulcer once. I can detest. It's horrible. Or a test. I can attest. Yeah, you can attest. Yeah, I will detest that it's You detest pleasant. having it. You des- oh, definitely okay. detest having it. Oh, okay. It. Okay, cool. Cool. <laughs> I don't know English very well. Um, so yeah, he was. God, uh, I'm gonna back up my shitty sense of humor with being somewhat smart. <laughs> just, yeah, a little bit of a little bit of proof there. Oh, man, I'm not even smart. I just have a decent vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, no, a stomach ulcer is horrible. When I worked at the news station, I worked all hours of the night, and I would eat like food. I would just snack throughout the whole day, and I worked different times of the day throughout the week, and so I was eating 24 hours a day on different parts of the day. And so my body didn't know what to do with it. So it made a really horrible stomach ulcer cost me thousands of dollars to fix. And it was a horrible time in my life. And he had one and he did not care about it at all. So I don't know if he's just a lot tougher than me. I think the answer is just yes. Um, the doctor, Tony, I think the thing you need to focus on is that he's going to die very, very soon after this. <laughs> but not like, really. We are, we are literally paragraphs away from him dying. going to be him dying because of the ulcer. So well, yeah, I think maybe I mean, because of the ulcer, or because of something else. Yeah. You know. So he went to the doctor, found out that he had a stomach ulcer, and the doctor told him that she should stop drinking. And he disregarded that instantly. After the appointment, he said goodbye to his family and headed back down, unbeknownst to him, for the very last time. He found himself in Greenwood, Mississippi in the summer of 1938. He was doing his standard playing, drinking, and banging any tail that wagged at him. He first hit on a girl whose father was litter. Thank you. His uh, whose father's so clever. He first <laughs> he first hit on a girl whose father was literally named Tush Hawk, which is what people would call someone who was highly respected and was an authority figure in the area. So he kind of backed off of that one and like boss hog yeah exactly yeah you damn duke boys um and he switched over to a another person who was named beatrice davis who was the wife of rd davis a local bartender Beatrice and Robert began regularly banging. Literally, Beatrice would say to her husband that she was going to go meet the girls every Monday, and then she would just go to Robert's boarding house and just they would just bump uglies for as dog long as out. they could. Yeah, dog up, dog uh, down. And uh, R.D. eventually found out about this. He was really upset and made a plan to best Robert. And this would be the last famous rumor about Robert. Austin. So the death rumor about Robert is that he was poisoned by this bartender and the uh the whole story goes that he got a, a whiskey and this whole story is perpetuated by the the man I talked about earlier another blues player on the scene named Sonny Boy Williamson uh who I th- 
I don't really trust his accounts because it sounds like he's one of those people that's like, oh, yeah, I knew him, so I'm going to just embellish everything I can. Because milk it. Every story he tells is very extravagant from the ones yeah. we have documented. But this one, he says that Robert got this whiskey, and for whatever reason, Sonny Boy was, was suspicious about it, knocked it out of his hand, and Robert slapped was, it. Yeah. Robert was pissed. He was like, don't ever knock a whiskey out of my hand ever again and took he another one. He took the one. juice harp out of his mouth and he said, Robert, don't drink that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so naturally, Robert's mad that he gets this drink knocked out of his hand, right? And asks for another one, which is supposedly again poisoned. But the problem with all of this is that the most l- widely accepted uh storyline is he was poisoned with strychnine but that really doesn't add up because it took him several days to actually die and strychnine would have acted within hours yeah and also the amount went from healthy to dead in hours yes and also the amount that would have been needed to actually be a fatal dose uh strychnine is extremely has a very potent smell and someone who's drinking as often as Robert is not going to be mistaken what what whiskey smells like for strychnine. Yeah. And so uh so yeah, uh we'll we'll get into what really happened, but basically that was was the biggest belief of the rumor was that this bartender put strychnine in his whiskey to to intentionally kill him, which is also hey, not yeah. the case. Yeah, that's the big thing is he was, he he like planned to kill Robert yeah. Johnson. And um, one other little story yeah. that I don't think matters but I do just kind of want to add is another It's worth noting. Yeah. Another cause of death <clears throat> that was noted for Robert was syphilis and this was mostly discounted because the only standing it had was it was a plantation doctor that post postmortem said this. And the mm-hmm. only basis, seemingly, for this is that in the time the there was the stereotype that that black men were so lust filled that they all were contracting they, syphilis. They he just he syphilis, just wrote it yeah. off to that, which is pretty yeah. offensive. So it's it's yeah. I feel like it's good to state that and say that's that's not it. Yeah, that's not he did not have syphilis. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, and and syphilis takes like months and months and months to like actually kill you. Well, like, it takes like thing. years, yeah, years yeah, and yeah. years. And, Isn't that how Capone and, died? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I can't be. comment. But it takes many years. So. But there are also extreme symptoms that show up before you die, like you go blind, yeah. stuff like exactly. that, stuff yeah, that was not happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so here's what really happened. Artie was upset. Uh, that that one is the most close to being true. I will say that Um, R.D. was upset with Robert for having sex with his wife. So he was going to poison his drink with uh, mothballs. Poison his drink, huh? Poison his drink. Get a little something in his drink. I was just gonna let that one slide <laughs> on through. Um, so he was gonna poison his drink with mothballs, like literally the thing that's in my basement right now. Um, and uh, it was it's commonly known when you put it in a drink as passagreen at the time. Um, it was meant to make him feel sick and incapacitate him. This technique was often used. People did this pretty regularly to get rid thing. of. Yeah, to get rid of unruly people out of the bars. It would cause nausea, vomiting, and stomach pain. But it had a much more severe effect on Robert. So since Robert had this untreated ulcer that he had found out about in Memphis, um, he drank the poison drink and he had all the normal symptoms. And even 
though he was huddled in a corner holding his stomach, people were still asking him to play the hits that they knew from the jukeboxes. So he was huddled in a corner and they're like, play Terraplane Blues. Play Dust My Broom. Like, and he was just like. Blues. Yeah, he's like, blues. Play Blues. Play Walking Blues. He's like, I that's, feel that's like another shit. thing we haven't covered. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like 30% or th- three fourths of the songs on the album or something blues. Yeah, it's all end in blues. Yeah, they're all end, they're all end in blues. Yeah. Like, it's crazy the amount of hey, I don't understand. Be true that. to what you know, you know? So he was taken from the bar up to his room with these stomach pains where his condition was worsening. He was throwing up so frequently and so violently that his esophagus actually ruptured and he began bleeding from the mouth and throwing up blood. Tush Hogg eventually took Robert from his room to a plantation where Tush was living, uh, and he stayed there for one night. And early in the morning on August 16, 1938, Robert Johnson had a hemorrhage and died at the age of 27. This is the very first member of the 27 Club that we will talk about. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. On his death certificate, it says that Robert died of, quote, no doctor. <laughs> and he quickly he was quickly buried in a plain pinewood box on the plantation. His spent- such a menacing like explanation. Like yeah, we don't know how he died, but there was no doctor, was no so doctor. He just, so we just whatever don't know. it was, even if it was preventable. He there, did there's die. a picture yeah. of the death certificate on the documentary, and it literally just shows it. Just no doctor, just big no doctor. bold letters. That is literally what it says, yeah. Um, Sorry. So his Spencer family up in Memphis was notified, and they came down to Greenwood to give him a proper burial in a real casket. There's uh, – if you look up his gravestone, there's three different ones, and they're not entirely sure which one is actually where his remains are. Yeah. Kind of fun. Yeah, I think that they say it's this one in in, in uh, Greenwood or near Greenwood. Um uh, so I don't know. We'll see. I think they're all relatively close yeah, too. I think my book is. I think Up Jump the Devil is the most recently done, even after the documentary. But don't quote me. Um, so uh, fortunately, though, this story does not end with his death. Just a few months after Robert's death. John Henry Hammond, the New York man who loved his music, was putting together a showcase of what he considered groundbreaking music that was set to be performed in Carnegie Hall in New York City. He invited Robert to play at the event, not knowing that he had recently passed away. When he found out that Robert was dead, he put out a statement in uh, December of the same year, so just Uh, four months after Robert died and he played his songs on a record on a stage to a full house of almost 3,000 people and thus the legend of Robert Johnson was truly born so shortly after he died yeah so four months after he died and it was like this was in motion while he was alive he just died before it could actually no no way to know about it yeah (laughs) yeah so so four months after he died his music was played to the most people had probably ever been played to at that time um uh john henry hammond actually hams it up and says the moment like at the exact same time we were asking him he died like yeah (laughs) i read that as well like what a weird claim to make yeah um but but (laughs) yeah this this was the biggest his music had ever seen 
was this this Carnegie Hall in New York City. It was being played there. His music then lay dormant for almost 20 years before it was released alongside a book called Charter Blues. After this, Columbia Records released The King of the Delta, which was a bunch of blues stuff, and it had a lot of his stuff on it. From there, it became a huge influence for new musicians like Bob Dylan, Keith Richards, and Eric Clapton, who even recorded and released an entire album of Robert Johnson covers done by Clapton. His music was then released multiple more times over the years. But in the 80 years since his death, We still only have 41 songs he recorded during those two sessions in San Antonio and Dallas. And he appeared in an episode of Supernatural. God damn it. (laughs) Me and my pop culture references. (laughs) Uh, That's actually kind of cool. I tried to watch Supernatural once, but I I love it. I'm pretty curious (laughs) about that one. Oh, the the CW CGI. Yeah. (laughs) The notorious CW. I remember remember one time uh, uh, Hillary and I were she really wanted to watch The Flash, Ugh. and I didn't want to. And she was like, why does this just look so bad? And I was like, it's the CW. <laughs> yeah. Like, she didn't get that that is, like, that is their signature. It's so trademark, just, man. Just really bad. Oh, yeah. Really Under, bad CGI. Underwhelming CGI is, is their thing. Uh, one, so another little side thing is supposedly there is a three-and-a-half-second, um, like, acetate, which uh, – Basically, a video clip of Robert playing, which is basically just stills on stills. And uh, I can't I, – I believe the guy's name was uh, Tater Red. And I don't know his significance, but I know that he has to have some kind of significance because I was uh, reading about two separate stories where uh, basically uh, Jimmy Page from uh, Led Zeppelin, this guy owns a store and Jimmy Page – watched this little clip and it swears it's Robert Johnson as well as uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger went and also watched it and they're convinced and they offered this guy a million dollars for this this and he wouldn't give it up. So why would you not take it? I don't know. I guess it's like, gotta, but I, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with it besides know, hide man. it from everyone? I exactly, don't get it. Some, yeah. some people and their collectibles. I don't I don't know. I don't care. I'll sell, I, I'll I like sell to play anything. with the toys. I'll, I'll sell, throw the box away so quick. I like to play with the toys. I will sell you anything God. I own. I will like anything <laughs> yeah. I own. If you tell me a price on it, I'll probably sell it to you. A million dollars, I'd sell that in a heartbeat. Exactly. I wouldn't even <laughs> think about it. But yeah. I mean, you know, we don't own anything actually cool, so well, yeah, I was try. I was trying to think of like a funny. I don't. I don't have anything nothing. worth mentioning. Yeah. Nothing. Oh. Yeah. So Robert Johnson, the man, was one of the best blues players in an era where blues reigned supreme, and Robert Johnson, the legend, will be a story that will long succeed any of us, and will always be one that will interest music fans both young and old novice and hardcore we hope that we didn't ruin robert johnson the legend but rather shine some light on robert johnson the man but for now that's it that's the story of robert johnson man i really can say i think so far if not the favorite this is one of my favorite episodes and i won't even pretend i did not know anything about robert johnson before we started kind of looking into this, and it turns out, like I said at the top of the episode, I did know a lot of stuff yeah. of him 
just had no idea the actual man. So this is super interesting, and you can find his yep. complete recordings on iTunes, on Spotify, those 40 songs, and I have listened They're to them They're super good. Yeah, I want to um, throw it, out a thank you right now because uh, Mike Barr, he, he basically – we were talking about the podcast um, and he said, you guys should do Robert Johnson. I'd heard nothing about him. And he told me all the, all the legend stuff. And Thanks he, Mike. Thanks Mike. I miss you and, at work. And yeah, he said that the, he said that th- this will be a cool one. And so I started reading into it and I was like, fuck, this is so super cool. So thank you, Mike, for, uh, Very awesome. uh, for suggesting this to us. Um, and if, if any of you guys, if any of the listeners has any suggestions for another band or artist or group or anything like that we would love to hear it if you want to send that to us uh you can do that on our social media pages our social media pages for facebook instagram and twitter are we're on in five w-e-r-e on in five um, we also have a website where you can contact us we're on in five.com um, if you want to talk to me specifically you can do that on twitter and instagram um both are anton is on in five a n t o n is on in five you'll find me on there follow me and uh say hi to me i'd appreciate it if you want to find me on instagram i'd be uh bones for boning if you want to find me on twitter i am ethan boning and um like always just email us at our gmail we are on in five at gmail with suggestions uh, recommendations, critiques, uh, tell us we sound stupid, whatever. I don't really care. Just talk to Just us. talk to us, yeah. Austin, what about you, man? And as it was before, as it is, as it will always be, I am on Twitter as T-H-O-M-A-A-A-F. On Instagram as Austin underscore Thomas 09. I do not change. Things don't change. But please do tweet at I Austin at his handle and tell him to change his handle because he tell needs him he to needs change a new account. Handle. It sucks. As it is, <coughs> as it was, as it always will be. Oh, if you know, in the past, um, we we were doing a, a beer. We were drinking beer every episode and talking to you about it. We decided we're going to move that to our social media uh, only just because um, it, it – it takes up a lot of time, and we were looking at statistics, our year-end statistics and stuff like that. Turns out people don't like it that much. Huge drop-off like at that point. <laughs> so we're just going to we're gonna stop doing that on the episode. Uh, apparently, you guys don't care about it. That's totally fine. Thank you for uh, uh, telling us inadvertently was, through stop listening as to it us. Is. <laughs> Thank as you it for always passively will be. aggressing. I will aggressively telling us. Exactly, yes, yes. This is something I'll change. Yeah, we'll never change, but we will immediately if you tell but us. But we, we will take your <laughs> We will immediately crumble. (laughs) Um, So uh, with that, please go like and review us on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere that you can like us and review us. Share us with friends. 2020's got big plans for us, and we've got big plans for 2020. So we're going to keep doing this every episode. Um, We're actually going to take a week off. After this episode, it makes sense to us right now when we're recording this, it's December um, 18th. We would actually record again on New Year's Eve, and we all want to spend our New Year's Eve with our families. So we won't be recording that episode. And then after that, we've got a pretty big surprise for you guys. We're going to be stepping away from coming down the pipe. Yeah, we're going to step away from uh, talking about music for a little bit, and you guys are going to get to know us a little bit better. So we're super excited for that. But until then, please have a very wonderful uh, 2020 until we talk to you next time reach out to us talk to us please follow us please like us and and please more than anything just like 
just be really nice to everyone. Just have a good time with everyone, you know? Be fun. Yeah, exactly. Have fun. When you think that you could be mean to someone, don't. Just don't. Be a bottle of Jim Bean or uh, Old Smoky Moonshine. Austin, you want to take me out on something pretty bluesy? I got the Jews harp if you got the lyrics. (laughs) Boom, 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 I can't even do it with my mouth. And he does it with his hands. Yeah. Yeah. You're nailing it. I went down to the crossroads. Fell down on my knees.